Welcome everyone to episode 5 of History of the Marine Corps, Events Leading to the Revolutionary War, Part 1. Last week we discussed Samuel Nicholas, the first unofficial commandant of the Marine Corps. We started the podcast by talking about his life growing up in colonial Philadelphia, his education at the Academy of Philadelphia, and his time as a tavern keeper for the Conestoga Wagon, which some argue was the actual birthplace of the United States Marine Corps. We also dug into the Second Continental Congress's decision on raising an Army, Navy, and Marine Corps, and briefly discussed some battles Nicholas participated in. This week digs into American history, and we'll talk about the struggles colonial America was facing with Britain. This topic is an entire show in and of itself, and I've tried to consolidate the events leading up to the Revolutionary War into two episodes. This episode will touch on the French and Indian War, the Sugar Act, the Currency Act, the Stamp Act, the Quartering Act, and the Townshend Acts. The American Revolutionary War is one of those events I feel is not discussed enough. It was a damn exciting time with damn exciting events, and I'm excited about this episode. So, thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. During the late 17th and 18th century, Europe was going through a philosophical movement that gave rise to concepts such as liberty, reason, and the scientific method. This was known as the Enlightenment, and the Western civilizations were starting to look at the world a different way, especially when it came to politics and religion. Enlightenment philosophy was very skeptical of religion, especially the powerful Catholic Church, monarchies, and the hereditary aristocracy. This skepticism motivated many European citizens to look for a place to settle that provided a level of freedom that wasn't an option under the British government at the time. Many citizens looked at the New World as a place to be exposed to other philosophies and cultures outside of Great Britain's, especially addressing concerns from a monarchy, like limited government for the people, consent of the governed, and to escape religious persecution. For the most part, the men and women who colonized America had a relatively peaceful relationship with Great Britain. Britain did not interfere with the American colonists and were very lax with many of the regulations that were in place. However, this all changed after the French and Indian War ended in 1763. North America provided many opportunities to the citizens of Europe, and many European countries were settling and colonizing North America to take advantage of new lands and wealth. French colonies were located throughout the middle and northeastern of what is now Canada, but by the mid-1700s, French citizens were moving south into the Ohio Valley, which includes parts of Pennsylvania, Virginia, and North Carolina. I have a map on historyofthemarinecorps.com if you're interested. At the very same time, British colonies were moving west to claim more land. This resulted in colonists competing for land, which each believed was rightfully theirs. This eventually led to war. France and Great Britain has a very long history of war. On top of the other Anglo-French wars, Britain and France fought at least six times regarding disagreements over colonies. During the French and Indian Wars, Great Britain used colonial militia as their fighting force against the French. However, the French had a great relationship with the local tribes and relied on them to help fight the colonial militia. The French and Indian War impacted life for early colonists and racked up a large debt for Great Britain. When the war ended in 1763, Great Britain had control of North America, east of the Mississippi, 
but needed to find a way to raise money and pay for their war debts. They also needed a way to pay for governing the new land they have just acquired. British citizens were already highly taxed, and the government was looking for alternative locations to raise money. Britain had the glass excise tax, wallpaper tax, candle tax, and many others. Residents were paying an average of 23 shillings per year in taxes. The colonies weren't even close. Massachusetts was one of the most highly taxed colonies at the time, and colonists in Massachusetts paid an average of one shilling per year in taxes. The decision was made to tax the colonies as a way to raise money for the war debt. The levying of these taxes are some of the main events that led up to the American Revolutionary War. The year following the French and Indian War, Great Britain, specifically Prime Minister George Grenville, introduced the American Revenue Act of 1764, also known as the Sugar Act. The intent of this act was to address three issues. The first, smuggling was rampant at the time and everyone turned a blind eye. This law attempted to stop the smuggling of sugar and molasses into the colonies by reducing the existing tax rate and enforcing collection of these taxes. Two, it allowed additional products to be taxed such as hides, silk, and wine. And three, these taxes would be used to pay for the French and Indian war debt. The Sugar Act was strictly enforced and it was successful at reducing the amount of goods that were smuggled into colonial America. However, colonial Americans were not happy with the Sugar Act, and that unhappiness led to protests and boycotting of British goods. For the first time, colonists were viewing Britain's decisions as a violation of their constitutional rights. The taxes that were collected would not benefit the colonies, but only Great Britain. Many viewed the Sugar Act as a way to control trade and argued that it was unconstitutional because it altered procedures on trade into a way of collecting additional revenue. During the same year, the Currency Act of 1764 was established and was a modification from the Currency Act of 1751. Gold and silver was limited in colonial America, so early colonists used paper money to help pay for debts. Think of it as an IOU. Paper money was easy to create and eventually, due to excess printing, depreciated compared to the British pound sterling. Colonial Americans were using paper currency for London merchants, which eventually led to the merchants taking a hit on the depreciated paper money. The Currency Act prohibited the colonists from using paper currency as payments for any debts, public or private, although it did not prohibit the colonies from issuing paper money. The purpose of the Currency Act was to protect British merchants from being paid in currency that was depreciated and to control printing and use of colonial paper money. As a result, the only way the colonies could repay their debt to Britain was with gold or silver. As their supplies of gold and silver quickly declined, this policy created severe financial hardship for the colonies. The Currency Act created tension in the colonies because it was seen as an attempt by the British government to gain control of the colonies' monetary policies. A Boston group called the Society for Encouraging Trade and Commerce started to raise some good slippery slope questions about where the Sugar Act and Currency Act are leading. They stated, For if our trade may be taxed, why not our lands? Why not the produce of our lands and everything we possess or make use of? They go on to say, If taxes are laid upon us in any shape without our having a legal representation where they are laid, are we not reduced from the character of free subjects to the miserable state of slaves? In short, this was taxation without representation. According to colonial Americans, Parliament did not have the authority to collect taxes from the colonies because no one represented the colonies in Parliament. For the next nine years, the colonies would continue to protest and lobby against the Currency Act. In 1765, the very next year, 
Britain would pass the Stamp Act that would tax all colonist newspapers, legal documents, and other printed materials. The Stamp Act required documents be printed on special paper from England that had an embossed revenue stamp on it. I've included a link on historyofthemarinecorps.com with the Stamp Act document, which lists the 54 different types of documentation impacted by this law. The price of doing business would go up drastically for the colonies. Just to go back quickly to the Sugar Act, the documentation required to be in place for the Sugar Act now requires a revenue stamp. This adds to the cost of business. Colonial Americans were infuriated with this new law, and this anger would result in unification against Britain on a whole new level. Everyone started to understand the Society of Encouraging Trade and Commerce's point. When will this stop? Without representation in Parliament, there isn't a limit on what can be taxed and the amount that can be taxed. For the most part, colonists were content and didn't want independence from Great Britain. But these new laws are starting to raise some questions and doubts about Parliament's treatment of the colonies in the New World. The Stamp Act Congress was created in October of 1765. It wasn't too successful. Only nine of the colonies sent delegates. Congress was divided, and personal differences were brought up during the debates. However, this was the first time colonies banded together for a common purpose, and this act was historic. Against all probability that Britain would approve of this meeting, esteemed representatives from the New World met and debated against possible solutions. Despite the bickering and divisiveness, they found a lot of common ground. This would be a major step toward the idea of independence against Great Britain. The Congress issued the Declaration of Rights and Grievances, which would be the first time colonists took action against what they deemed an unfair act of the British government. Many members in Parliament realized that the Stamp Act was doing more harm than good to both the English and colonial economies. However, Parliament would not entertain the point that they had no right to tax the colonies. The Declaration of Rights and Grievances would not be considered since they felt that the colonies did not have a right in deciding what Parliament's authority was. British Prime Minister George Grenville argued that if Parliament backed down, this would only invite further opposition in the future. However, not all of Great Britain's statesmen agreed with Grenville. William Pitt, 1st Earl of Chatham and future Prime Minister, defended Parliament's right to legislate for the colonies, but he agreed with the Americans that the right did not extend to taxation. He did not agree with the Stamp Act and praised Americans for their resistance. At the end of the day, it was the colonists who made a difference. Colonists felt that Britain did not have a right to tax them without the approval of their colonial representatives. They demonstrated their disapproval by forcing all of the agents responsible for collecting taxes to resign. The Stamp Act resistance also formed the infamous Sons of Liberty group to fight the Stamp Act. They would play a crucial role in the American Revolution and include such great patriots as John Adams, John Hancock, and Samuel Adams. This rebellion would not go unanswered by the British. They would pass a Declaratory Act on the same day the colonists repealed the Stamp Act. This act declared that the British Parliament had authority over the American colonies and that the colonists would have to obey their laws and pay taxes they levied. This would unite the colonists further since there was concern on what was the threat that was implied by this document. On May 15, 1765, around two months after the Stamp Act was passed, British Parliament issued the Quartering Act, another very controversial law that would impact the colonies. The Quartering Act required colonists to provide shelter and support to British soldiers if needed. This support included beer, firewood, salt, candles, beds, and multiple other items. The Quartering Act was also picky about the living conditions as well and stated, Uninhabited houses, outhouses, barns, or other buildings, 
for the reception of such soldiers as the barracks and public houses shall not be sufficient to contain or receive. Reimbursement would not be paid, and the colonists saw this as another way of being taxed. Needless to say, this outraged the colonies, and with the exception of Pennsylvania, every colony refused to follow the law. In 1767, the Chancellor of Exchequer, Charles Townshend, passed a series of acts referred to as the Townshend Acts, as a means to generate revenue to help pay down Britain's debt. This no longer only included debt from the French and Indian Wars, but Great Britain was spending £400,000 per year just by keeping military presence in the colonies. The Townshend Acts are regarded as one of the key causes of the American Revolution. There are some arguments amongst historians about which laws should fall into the Townshend Act, but I'll discuss four of the most often mentioned. The first pass was the New York Restraining Act of 1767. This was passed on June 15th, and it stated that the New York Assembly and Governor could not pass any new bills until they agreed to comply with the previously mentioned Quartering Act. However, before Parliament passed this bill, New York heard some scuttlebutt about retaliation for refusing to follow the Quartering Act. They put aside £3,000 to pay for the soldiers' housing before Parliament passed the Act. Britain heard of New York's compliance and felt that it was adequate to support the Quartering Act. However, this did not go over well with the colonists. When word reached the rest of the colonies, there was concern and anger over the Parliament's abuse of power and willingness to suspend New York's government. The second law passed was the Revenue Act of 1767. This was another attempt to collect more taxes from the colonies, and this law taxed tea, paper, paint, glass, and lead imported into the colonies. This law also provided customs officials broad authority to enforce the taxes, punish smugglers, and search private property for smuggled goods. Townshend estimated that the taxes collected from the Revenue Act would only be around £37,000 per year. That's less than 10% of the cost Britain was paying for their military presence in the colonies. Instead of the money covering the cost of the military, Townshend suggested the funds be used to pay for the salaries of colonial governors and judges. The colonial governors, judges, and colonists all saw through this. If the British government paid the salary of the colony's judges and governors, there is a clear conflict of interest and colonial leaders could potentially be swayed in backing Britain's decisions. Third on the list is the Indemnity Act, passed on June 29, 1767. This act lowered the tax on Great Britain's largest trading company, the East India Company. I could probably talk about the East India Company for the next 20 episodes, but I'll try to hit the highlights for the sake of time. The East India Company had a monopoly on the tea market. Most of Parliament were investors in the company and received and relied on annual dividend payments to support their lifestyle. Tea from the East India Company was expensive due to the excessive taxes from Britain. More than 50% of the price of tea was from taxes. 25% was taken as an import fee, another 25% duty fee for warehouse storage, and an additional one shilling per pound was taxed on the tea itself. The majority of tea coming into the colonies was smuggled from the Netherlands, and a large amount of tea enjoyed in England was also smuggled from the Netherlands. The Indemnity Act got rid of the 25% inland tax and reimbursed some of the other 25% custom tax. This would significantly lower the price of tea, and Americans would be paying about half the price they're paying in England. On the surface, this seemed like a great deal for everyone. The East India Company would be able to sell more tea, Britain would still collect tea revenues, and the colonies would be able to purchase tea for a lot less. The colonies did not see it that way. Although tea was cheaper, the Indemnity Act called for a three-pence tax that would be collected in the colonial ports. 
This was another example of taxation without representation, and the colonists were becoming concerned about the motivation of Great Britain. The fourth law passed by Townshend was the Commissioners of Customs Act. This law created a new customs board located in the colonies for the purpose of enforcing shipping regulations. Although a customs board was in place prior to this act, regulations were not strictly enforced due to the board not being located in the colonies, but rather in England. Stricter enforcement meant the colonists would no longer be able to avoid many duties and taxes. Creating a separate commission to focus just on North America with increased funds for enforcement would ensure that trade laws were enforced and custom duties collected. Custom officials would be held accountable specifically for American revenues. It also required more officials be present in America to ensure proper enforcement. The Townshend Acts angered many colonists, and in order to protect the officials who were responsible for enforcing British laws in the colonies, British planned to send soldiers to help protect officials. Boston held the Massachusetts Convention of Towns, which was an assembly addressing the additional troops coming to the colonies. There was an existing law that required all homes must have a musket and ammunition ready in order to defend their rights. They claimed it was for protection just in case another war with France broke out, but everyone was aware that this was an excuse to avoid treason charges. As we'll discuss next week, British troops in Boston will not be welcome, and this tension will lead to the Boston Massacre. Thanks for joining. Next week, we will complete the events leading to the Revolutionary War and discuss the Boston Massacre, the Tea Act, the Boston Tea Party, and the Intolerable Acts. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter and find out more information about each episode, which includes references used. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you enjoy the show, tell a friend. We rely on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.